So uh, good afternoon. Thank you for coming and joining us today. Uh, my name is Russell Gold. I'm moderating. Uh, I am the, uh, an energy journalism fellow at the University of Texas and a senior energy writer at the Wall Street Journal. And uh, welcome to uh, our panel today as part of the fifth annual Texas Tribune Fest. I am very pleased to uh, have for this one-on-one -on -one conversation Christy Craddock, uh, commissioner uh, for the Texas Railroad Commission. Uh, so just a, a really brief background, bio on you. You've been, uh, you were elected commissioner in 2012. Um, you're up for, well, your term expires in 2018, I believe? That's right. Okay, so before, uh, before coming here to Austin, you're a Midland native and uh, lawyer by training, and uh, you worked as a political confidant advisor to your father, right. uh, Tom Craddock, for many years. Uh, so the format today, we'll be here for about, uh, we'll be talking for about 45 minutes. We'll have some time for questions. Uh, there are mics on in either aisle, so please, uh, when we sort of get close to that, you can stand up and I will call on you. Please ask a question. Um, and uh, I'm asked to remind everyone to silence their phones uh, and to tweet as much as they can, I believe, is, is sort of, this is a, a social media operation. Um, so we're here to talk about oil and gas, which is important because it's 37% of the Texas economy right now. Um, and you know, I think you could make the argument that the industry is under more strain right now than at any time in, in several years. Some oil prices down, we've seen some bankruptcies already, uh, and we've also seen some uh, increasing tension the last year between the public and the oil and gas operators. So it's a, f a fascinating time for you, and we're gonna get into that. But my first question, uh, I'm wondering if I could get you right here uh, on stage to, to pledge to do something about the name of the Railroad Commission. Where do you stand on that? Why is it still being called the Railroad Commission? Well, I think it's a legislative problem, number one. Okay. So, well, you have some influence there. I, mean, you I, can don't, go talk. I don't tell anybody what to do over there, and I ask nicely occasionally. So, and our focus is budget and sunset this next cycle. So, uh, where my priorities are for us for, for the name change, look, when I ran, the name change concept sounded great. Mm -hmm. Our biggest problem is twofold with the name change. One, the legislature hadn't been interested, well, I should say three things. Legislature hadn't been interested in doing it, so it's their vote. Two, it's going to cost us roughly $500,000, that's the estimate from last year. So. Those are dollars that I think are better spent in enforcement and inspections at this point in the industry. And three, I really want the name change to be a constitutional amendment because we are a constitutional body and I think is a protection for us both from potential federal overreach and what the legislature might want to wish upon us later. We need a constitutional amendment and the legislature doesn't necessarily see that. So until we all come to a kumbaya agreement, we will continue to be the Royal Commission as far as I'm, as, uh, far as I'm aware. And okay. I think that's where at least, that's what our response to Sunset Commission has been this cycle as well. So a year ago, um, I moderated a panel that you were on here at the mm -hmm. Texas Tribune Fest, and uh, we were talking about the future of the oil and gas industry. And at the time, you said, you ain't seen nothing yet. Mm -hmm. And you've used that phrase uh, a bunch. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by that? Because if I look, you know, as I look at it, uh, a year ago, there were 900 rigs drilling in Texas. We're now down around 350. Mm -hmm. So are you still bullish? I mean, do you still think we haven't seen anything yet? And, and tell me why. 
I do think we haven't seen anything yet. And I say that because in Texas, we know where the resources are. Mm -hmm. When you look at what's going on in the Permian, and I say that particularly about the Permian right. Basin, uh, when you look at what's going on in the Permian, two-thirds of the rigs running in the state are running in the Permian Basin roughly right now. And somebody explained it to me like this for the Permian Basin itself. If you have a coffee table, say a four-by-four four coffee table, and you look at that coffee table and you put a coaster in the middle of that coffee table, mm -hmm and assume that coffee table is the sweet spot in the Permian Basin. Okay. Put the coaster in the middle, that's all we've developed in the Permian Basin. So the, and with today's technology. Mm -hmm. So I think the potential for this state is huge and we know where the resources are. Now, are we in a downturn? Yes. Mm -hmm. And that's not unusual for this industry. We've all done it before. I talked to somebody the other day who's um, said, I've done this five times now. And I said, well, you've been doing this for a while. So, uh, but I think you, there's still dollars to be made. Mm -hmm. And I think long-term, and I mean long-term 20, 30, 40, 50, a generation from now, this state is well positioned and we will continue develop, to develop oil and gas. Do you see any, what do you feel are the risks um, that would prevent that from happening for, for a generation from now, for whoever, the next generation, Christy Craddock and Russell Gold are, and they're sitting here. What are the risks that might interfere with oil and gas development and the, the development of the Permian as you see it? I think our biggest risk today is really the federal government and the overreach. This administration with EPA, U.S. Fish and Wildlife, specifically those two agencies, are promulgating rules that are overreaching, in my opinion, don't make a lot of economic sense, don't have the science behind them a lot of, a lot of times. And so... We as a state and the Railroad Commission overall have historically regulated oil and gas. We do a good job. We've done it for 120 years as an agency, but 80 plus just oil and gas. Mm -hmm. And we, people still look to the Railroad Commission and look to the state of Texas overall about what we're doing. So give me an example. Give me an example where the EPA is uh, promulgating rules that are specifically interfering with the, the ability to, to drill for oil and gas wells because, I mean, I look at the EPA uh, under the Obama administration very active on uh, power plants, mm -hmm. much less so on regulating oil and, oil and gas drilling. And, but I'm interested in your perspective because you're making this case that, that the federal government could, has the risk to really come in here um, and, and interfere with oil and gas operations. So where have we seen this? I mean, what's the evidence of that? So let me give you three places okay. where I think we're seeing federal government interference. First and foremost, and TCEQ regulates the air emissions issues all over the state for oil and gas and everybody else. But there's a methane rule, proposed mm -hmm. methane rule out there. You can argue the merits one way or the other, but the bottom line is 40% potential reduction for oil and gas, which interestingly... 40% reduction of... Methane emissions out of oil and okay. gas facilities in and of themselves, mm -hmm. and that's pipelines. It's, it's the whole process. Now, look, that sounds great, but when you look at what overall methane emissions are in this country, it's not just all from oil and gas. Mm -hmm. It's from ag. It's from cities. It's naturally occurring in a lot of places. But you're, they're targeting the oil and gas industry first and foremost. And when we have, as we've seen the increase in natural gas production and use across the country, we've seen, already seen methane go down, the methane emissions go down not across the state. So, and we're not going to get any credit for that. So that's one place where I think it, that you can have that conversation. Mm -hmm. The second place where we're seeing, and this is EPA driven for oil and gas, and thankfully because... 
Texas is unto itself, which we appreciate. We don't have a lot of federal lands in Texas, right. but it really affects most of the western states. That the, the EPA was trying to put fracking rules, particularly on federal lands, Bureau of Land Management. Now, here's the difference between BLM and how the, the Railroad Commission works. First and foremost, where we've seen an increase in, in production across the state and across the country has been on private lands in some state owned. Mm -hmm. Federal lands are, are down production wise five to 25%. So that we're not producing, it's your tax dollars by the way at risk because those, those mineral payments go into the general fund. I mean, we're not producing our own. So they're, and, and right now today, BLM, it takes them 290 days to get a drilling permit out, which is very inefficient and ineffective. Where at the Railroad Commission, even a year ago before we had a downturn, it takes us two. So that's it. So now they want to put fracking rules on top of state fracking rules, because all of us have rules in place for mm -hmm. drilling. The estimate is, and this in mind, this is estimates are it could take up to a year to get a drilling permit. So to me, that's just ways to slow down. And the third place where we really see Department of Interior getting engaged is obviously endangered species. Right. And I think the best example the is prairie chicken, is prairie yeah. chicken dune sage fresh lizards. So, uh, and, and those are private property rights that are being taken and ways to limit when and where you can drill for oil and gas. So it may not be we're squashing the boot on you like they are for mm -hmm. coal, although the concern is once coal happens as a carbon fuel, then they're coming after oil and natural you gas. You really next. think that that's a concern, that, that, that this is sort of a concerted effort to let's eliminate coal um, or at least really reduce it, and once we're done with that, we'll go after natural gas? And who's the we? Environmental groups, the, the federal government? Would, would I think that environmental groups, if you look at environmental group websites, mm -hmm. it's stated on their uh, several websites. Right. But that has also been the philosophy of this administration, the Obama administration. He gets up and says he doesn't like carbon fuels. So, which is interesting because he takes credit for the jobs that it's created, but then goes back and says he doesn't like carbon fuels. And, and I think that's But this, is, but this is the president who, a week before the Deepwater Horizon, was talking about expanding offshore drilling. I mean, you know, he, he's often criticized for that, but he, you know, I, I, I often wonder where are the concrete, where are the steps that show him really trying to slow this boom down. I, I and we've gone from 5 million barrels a day production to 9 million barrels a day production under his administration. But, so. he's, but he's taking credit for something, and I think if you talk to the industry, they would tell you the overall philosophy they believe. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure that anybody at the Railroad Commission would disagree based on the rules that we are commenting on regularly as well, mm -hmm. that the philosophy out of this administration actively is to get rid of carbon fuels long term. And of course, this administration has, what, a year and a half, two years can't left? Go, can't go fast enough, as far as I'm concerned. Okay, okay. well, we'll get back to some of those issues. <laughs> um, so recently, the, the San Antonio Express News had an interesting series about flaring in the Eagle Fur. Uh, and they said 8% of the gas in the Eagle Fur was being flared. Some counties, Wilson County, uh, was even higher, about 30%. Um, isn't this a waste of resources? I mean, if I'm a royalty owner and my gas or the gas of my land is being flared, you know, my reaction is I, I, I want to be paid for that. Um, so what else could the Railroad Commission be doing to, to try to stop the flaring, reduce the flaring and, and, and loss of Texas resources? You know, flaring is a real challenge, obviously, and we've had such fast growth in this industry that until we've got infrastructure built, which I think we're 
making better progress in the state overall. Um, we're getting permits and for new pipes on a regular basis, which I think is a plus for us to, to build capacity out in the, in the state. But until that capacity is built in the state, we're gonna have some challenges overall with flaring. The plus is, and people don't realize, the Railroad Commission has rules about flaring. Mm -hmm. So you can't just flare indiscriminately. You have to come get a permit. We pay attention, and if we don't, then somebody's gonna call and tell us anyway, right. but we pay attention. It hasn't been flaring. the hardest permit to get, though, that, the flaring permit. It, sometimes yes and sometimes no, depending on where it is and how long the permit is for. Um, but overall, we do pay a lot more attention than people realize, and I think we've seen a decrease in flaring since the articles were written. So as a response to the, to the, the pressure yeah. or just in general? I think in general we've seen a, a, a decrease overall in this industry when we've seen flaring just because there's been more capacity built. In 1947, your predecessor, William Murray, a railroad commissioner back then, um, forced oil wells to shut down mm -hmm. because there was flaring. Um, much to everyone's surprise, and it worked. So why don't we take the same approach? Why don't we sort of say, look, if you can't build a pipeline to capture these Texas resources, you can't produce oil. And, and the concept sounds good. Our challenge is this normally, mm -hmm. and we have this with both pipelines and electricity in this state. The wells drilled, figured out whether it's oil, gas, natural gas, liquids, whatever it's going to produce, and then comes the electricity, and then comes the pipes. So sometimes know, it's a lag we, we, time. But this isn't a surprise. I mean, if you, depending on what part of Carnes County you drill, and you know whether you're going to get oil or gas. I mean, you should know with a fair degree of certainty going in, and if you don't, you probably shouldn't be in this business, whether it's going to be oil or gas, you should be able to plan ahead for that. Industry doesn't always plan ahead, and also is market. It's market-driven. So if they can bid out, get the, get the pipe um, bid to them and, and build, then it's market-driven as well. And so when you talk about landowners, I agree that that's a challenge. Um, but a lot of that is should be, I think, if I'm a, a, an attorney sitting there for the landowner, I might put that in my lease agreement, that if you flare or do some things or have some con contractual agreements as well. So it's not something the Railroad Commission, as far as lost dollars, deals with. Okay, but did you, if I'm hearing you correctly, so if I'm a landowner and I'm signing that agreement as the land, not as the mineral rights owner, but as the land rights owner. No, or, it's, it'd be the mineral It'd be the mineral, okay. Yes. So do you think then landowners should have something in their uh, contract that says you can flare for X amount of time, but after that, you, I mean, is that what you're suggesting? No, I, th I mean, I think the lost payment is what I'm talking lost about. Lost payment, mineral, so if you're gonna do that, Mineral owners Pay me potentially for it. could put that. It's it could be a piece that they could put in their contract or not. You're the lawyer. I'll I'll, I'll take it. But it's not you. something the Railroad Commission deals with. Um, so let's talk about Denton for a second. Um, obviously, most people I think here will know, but uh, I guess it was last November, so about a year ago, uh, the city of Denton voted to ban fracking and fairly. And then there was a threat of lawsuit. If I remember correctly, there was the lawsuit was filed within eight hours or something after the, the vote came in. Uh, and then the legislature turned around and effectively prohibited that. Uh, first of all, let's just get it, let's put this out there. What do you think should happen? Um, should local municipalities have the ability to limit or prohibit uh, fracking? Well, I think first and foremost, the legislature clarified that that was their attempt with House Bill 40 right. um, to make sure because oil and gas, obviously, as you stated at the beginning of the conversation, is 37 percent of the industry mm -hmm. uh, or the statewide economy. Right. And it's important. Uh, it's important to the economy. And so I think what House Bill 40 did was clarify that the Railroad Commission is in charge of regulating the oil and gas 
above, below the ground, and cities have the ability to make sure that if there's noise, if there's pollution, if there are some setbacks, that that is their ability to continue um, with, with, to have local ordinances. Well, th that all sounds appropriate. It sounds great, but, but when you're out there and you're talking to residents who feel um, that there's a, a, an operator that's drilling too close or not listening and they're not, you know, they've tried to complain. I mean, how do you say that to them? I mean, it, it sounds to me what you're saying is, look, for the, for the benefit of the state, we've long ago made this decision that we're going to allow oil and gas drilling and we're going we're gonna to be friendly to it. We're going to try to make, uh, we're, we're try to lower the barriers. But the people who are living sometimes in those areas feel like, look, you're, you're asking me to make a sacrifice. How do you respond to them on that? I think, I mean, and look, I think part of what we've not done well at the Railroad Commission, quite frankly, is educate people about what we do as an agency and what the, there are inspections, that there are rules to be followed, that if those companies aren't following those rules and if they aren't, I call it the social license to operate, if they aren't engaged in the community, educating their neighbors next to them, uh, that that's a real challenge and that maybe they, sh they should look at how they're operating in the communities. I think that's what happened in Denton as much as anything. I agree. And so, that there was an operator who just was not playing nice. And, with, and with I think neighbors. lack of communication uh, from between two government entities, Railroad Commission and the city, about what we do on a regular basis. I don't think company, companies don't tell them, and we forget as agent, an agency to go out and educate people. And so our real Was that goal, mishandled? You, was, I don't know was, that we mishandled it. I think we missed an opportunity to go in, particularly in the Barnett Shale, we've done much better in the Eagleford and the Permian Basin about educating communities that the Royal Commission exists, what we do, that we have information available, that if you've got a problem, pick up the phone. We'll go out and inspect if there's something but, going on. But people in Den were saying that they felt like they had reached out to the state and they weren't getting satisfaction. I mean, is, there, is, there, is, that, is that a complaint you've heard before? Would you feel that there needs to be more of an outreach, more inspectors? And our real goal right now, and it's an active goal at the commission, is to have more communication with communities and have more communication with individual landowners. So we are, we've now got five people on our PR community outreach staff, um, media staff, which is the highest we've ever had. Mm -hmm. We're now tweeting from the commission. Um, we've now upgraded our IT, so our GIS mapping system is almost as good as Google Earth and the mm -hmm. fact that you can find more information on our website, and that's part of what we've been doing is upgrading our IT so we can be more transparent. And look, if we've got somebody who calls us, no matter what the community is, we're going to send somebody to those meetings so they can understand what the Railroad Commission does and how we can be helpful and work with them. So on Monday, uh, a new University of Texas at Austin energy poll is going to come out. This is the, annual, this is the uh, statewide poll. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the questions that was asked uh, was, should cities be able to ban fracking within their borders? 58% of respondents said that they should. Cities should have that right. So is this going to turn into a political landmine uh, for, the, for the Railroad Commission, for the legislature? It seems as if... Uh, House Bill authority um, and what what you're saying is a little bit out of step with the public who want more local control. And, uh, and while I appreciate local control, it seems to me the legislature at this time has said the Railroad Commission has the expertise to continue doing permits and, and regulate oil and gas in the state. So that's the laws we live under at, at our, my agency. Um, you know, there's, there's often, I've heard you say this, I've heard many other um, 
uh, Texas lawmakers say this, that they don't want the federal government regulating because we know how to do things here in the state. We're very, you know, we've, we've, we can handle the situation better. But isn't that what local towns are saying? That look, we, you know, we want to be able to handle our own affairs, and then the state comes down and says, no, you know, we're gonna, you can't prohibit this type of activity. I mean, isn't there a little bit uh, of a disconnect there? I think that voters obviously have the right to vote how they how they feel their need to, but I think where the legislature in the process we've just gone through in the legislature is they're representative of their communities mm -hmm. and of this state, and that they've made the decision that this is how it's going to work at this point. So hopefully. None of us mess it up, and that's the direction we continue to go. You recently said, it was a, it was a great quote, you said, if, if you're getting into the oil industry, you're getting into the water industry. Yes. Um, it, there are obviously some operators out there that are recycling water, uh, using brackish water. You look at someone like the Faskin Ranch, which I think is now at zero fresh water. Uh, but, but this isn't uniform. Uh, it's, it's basically voluntary at this point. Mm -hmm. Does more need to be done? What more could be done? Uh, to, to push companies to conserve water, to use non-potable water resources. Do, do you feel an urgency to, to try to get companies to do this? I don't think there's an urgency because I think even in the last three years since I've been on the commission, we have seen that technology with water recycling, water reuse, new technology to use brackish water has grown um, leaps and bounds, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. uh, and we put in place now almost two years ago a rule at the commission to make sure there's recycling rules in place that were, I call it the carrot not stick approach, right. Uh, right. to make sure companies had some incentive and our rules were best practices at the probably at the time and that may continue to develop as we go forward, whether those need to change as this industry continues to evolve. But if you ask industry, I don't think there's anything else the railroad commission should do. And I'm not sure until it's economic completely that we that it will um, be mainstream. But here and here's the other challenge in Texas, particularly. I kind of joke that I regulate about nine different states because the geology and geography is so different. So if you're in South Texas, your flowback water is only 15 to 20 percent. Mm -hmm. If you're in the Permian Basin, your flowback water is up to 50 percent, right. five zero percent. This is the amount of water that's coming out after you put in that's that right. comes back out from that's the fracking right. operations. And so I think you're, that's why you're seeing companies, it's more economic and makes more sense in the Permian Basin mm -hmm. to try to do new technologies and different technologies out there than it does in South Texas. Not that there's not things going on in the Eagle Ford, by the way, but I think companies are trying to figure out, and one size doesn't fit all when you're looking at recycling. So you mentioned the water recycling rules. Um, what about disposal wells? Are, do we need to have new rules on disposal wells, which have become very controversial uh, about what to do with the water? Uh, the Railroad Commission hasn't updated its disposal well rules for, I think, since this boom really began. So does that need to happen? And, and if so, what kind of, what, what are you planning? And the disposal well rules we looked at about two years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, put them aside for a variety of reasons at the time. And I think we're back looking at those, uh, trying to make sure we've got best practices. Like I said, this industry's changed so much even in two to three years mm -hmm. since we first promulgated or worked on some rules that we think we probably need to go back and relook at them and get different different uh, communities involved before we do saltwater disposal rules. So they're still sitting, and I think you'll see us do something at some point. Uh, in the next couple of years, in the next biennium? Potentially. Or? I, don't Potentially. Know that I don't know that it's on the calendar okay. at this point. Okay. Um, I wanted to get you to commit to a timeline, but it doesn't sound I, like it's going to happen. I don't have one. Okay. Uh, so 
After the Deepwater Horizon, one of the changes that the federal government made was that they said, we no longer want to have a single agency that is charged with both promoting offshore oil development as well as regulating it. So they took that single agency and they broke it up into two. And, and this came out of all the, the presidential commissions looking into this, which basically said, it's very difficult to have one agency do both. But the Railroad Commission does both. You're charged with both regulating and promoting oil and gas development in Texas. So um, why not? What, what, I mean, is that something you would entertain? Or, or how do you justify having both those functions under a single roof? You know, I think and when you talk about promoting, to me, it's promoting Texas overall. Mm -hmm. So I don't think it's just pr promoting just oil and gas in this state. Um, and first and foremost, I think it's promoting Texas and our economy overall. And two, I look at my job more as a regulator and having best practices and rules in place. And mm -hmm. so that, to me, is promoting our industry that we are, uh, as a state, have the best rules in place, I think. And if not, we're always looking at new rules to make sure that we are doing the best for the country and best for the state. But we're a smaller agency. If you look at most states, mm -hmm. uh, and most states that have oil and gas agencies, regulatory bodies, they are charged with both. The federal government probably is too big and may not can do it as well as states can. But I think overall our job needs to be regulatory. But I also think one of our jobs when you look at regulatory is not just working with oil and gas. In my office, regularly we see environmental groups, agriculture groups, communities. TML's been in my office, mm -hmm. um, Tex Municipal League. So I think it's expanding knowledge of oil and gas and who we work with too, so we have best regulations in place. The mayor of uh, Reno, Texas, mm -hmm. uh, where they've had some earthquakes recently said, described it saying it was like the fox guarding the hen house. I mean, that, that, that is a common, maybe not common, but that's an idea that's out there that you're, you're, you, you just can't do both out there effectively. And, and I disagree with that because I will say this, last year we did 130,000 inspections at our agency. And the, the tool we have, and we use it, and we used it 17 times last year, is to shut you down and not allow you to operate in the state if you don't follow our rules. We have very stringent rules at our agency and we take them seriously. So while I, I disagree with, um, with, with the mayor of Reno, so 17, let, let, me, let me get, 17 companies were essentially given the death penalty. Yes. You're not allowed to be an oil and gas operator. What, what brings you to that point? What, what, are, what do you commonly see um, to, to, to get to that point? You know, not following rules, not remediating, because I, I call the Railroad Commission is a little bit different than TCQ mm -hmm. in a good way. Mm -hmm. And the fact that we try to work with companies to remediate the problem instead of going in and we, we find and have a very extensive enforcement ability too. But we don't try to shut you down because I don't want to inherit at the Railroad Commission and at the state, we don't want to inherit those right. properties, right? right? If we don't have you want to, no. the property is being abandoned wells essentially. That's they right. Need to be and mineral interest owners are affected, the tax base is affected, everybody is affected if that person walks away from that property. Mm -hmm. So it is better for the state and the Railroad Commission, quite frankly, and that operator if they comply with rules pay the fines, respond to us timely, um, clean up what they're asked to clean up. And if those things aren't being done, then we that is our ability. So you've spent a million, $5 million, $10 million drilling a well, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden your leases are severed and you can't go back on, you can't produce. I think that's a pretty powerful enforcement tool. Well, let's change gears for a second. We've been talking a lot about oil and gas regulations, and we'll get back to that. 
Um, but let's talk about you and your future for a second. Uh, the current attorney general is under indictment for securities fraud. You're a lawyer. Is, if, if he were to step down, would you have any interest in that job? I'm a railroad commissioner today, so that's where I am. And th that's a lot of ifs before he ever gets there. So we, have an, we have an attorney general. We do, but I think most people would agree that it's unlikely that we'll, at the very least, have an incumbent attorney general running. Um, maybe not today, but do you see yourself ultimately interested in a position like that? Look, we're up for sunset, and we have a budget cycle. Mm -hmm. When we get through next session, ask me the question again after I've had a break during the summer. Today, I'm a railroad commissioner. I'm going to be there for another three years. I like being a railroad commissioner. It's a great place to be. Okay. Most important agency we have in the state, if you ask me. Why is it the most important agency? Because it's an agency that has good regulations and allowing the oil and gas industry and this state to thrive well and I, without being totally onerous mm -hmm. and yet have good regulations that people know what the rules are and want to do business in this state. Do you think um, the, the Railroad Commission has promoted or, or promulgated recently a whole new set of well integrity rules? Mm -hmm. um, and I'm always, whenever I mention that, uh, you know, I'm out talking to people around the country, I said, well, Texas has got great well integrity rules. They seem surprised. Do you think that Texas gets a, a bum rap uh, or the, the, the Railway Commission for not regulating and for not doing regulations? I think it's really a lack of communication and education, frankly, from the Railway Commission's part that we haven't done a good job educating people what we do. And that is a long-term goal for us to try to remedy. Um, so last month, a, a state panel, um, a state railroad commission panel, found that there was no link between earthquakes in North Texas and oil and gas activity. Uh, and this refuted essentially work that was peer-reviewed scientific work done by scientists at Southern Methodist, SMU. Um, there, there's been a lot of peer-reviewed work on the connections between disposal wells and, and, and earthquakes. Where do you come down on this? Uh, do, do you see, have you seen evidence that there's causal links Maybe not in this particular case, but in general between disposal wells and earthquakes? Well, first and foremost, on the state panel, nobody's made that determination because we have a show cause, two show cause cases at our agency. Mm -hmm. PFDs have been circulated, but we as, an, as commissioners have not finally made a determination. So that was a jump the gun by press, by the way. Okay. So, um, so, and I can't talk about that, by okay. the way, those two. All right. So let's just talk more broadly. I mean, do you, so, and do overall, I appreciate the SMU study. We appreciate their data, their information, and them working with us. You know, when we started Seismicity now two years ago at our agents and, and inherited it in some respects, but the, the potential that it could be oil and gas related, mm -hmm. uh, we didn't have the appropriate personnel at our agency. We hired Dr. Craig Pearson, who's been as a seismologist March of last year, very well respected, great gentleman. And he knew people at SMU, mm -hmm. um, knew people really across the state. It's a small little world, but, and he's a seismologist. I mean, are you convinced that there's a connection? I, I don't know the answer to that. And that's why we've hired him. That's why we're looking at all the data that's available. We changed our rules on saltwater disposal wells mm -hmm. a year ago to make sure that if there were any issues potentially, that we could address those those rule those issues with saltwater disposal wells, and what we are interested in looking there's a new a new BG led group that's TexNet that mm -hmm. the legislature has uh, given dollars to BG with A and M as a partner to and the governor will appoint a panel to put more seismometers on the ground and report back 
before session next year, supposedly. I think the date is important. And I don't and I think we that. know the answer yet. You don't think we know the answer yet. Ohio feels that we know the answer. Oklahoma, um, it feels that we know the answer. I mean, they, they've got this whole traffic light mm -hmm. set up where, you know, green go, but red, you've got to stop. I mean, it seems to me that, that, that Texas is running the risk of really falling behind here and, and, you know, and not addressing this. I mean, how long are we going to wait for the, for the data to come in? I mean, it just seems like we, there, there's been plenty of work on this already. Well, and I think we haven't done it in Texas. Texas is very different. And like I said earlier, we're like nine different states geologically, geographically. Every place is different in the state. We need more data. We're a very science-driven agency. And to jump to a conclusion or not know the right answer before we make decisions is, an, is um, not the way we do business at the Railroad Commission. So, so it, when would you like to see? I mean, because we could be gathering data. I mean, academics do this. You know, we could be gathering data for a, for a very long time. When, when would you like to be able to say either yay or nay? We either need I, to. I don't think we know. I don't know that there's a timing issue on that. I think we definitely want to see the data, look at how our rules are based on the data, see if we need to make changes at our agency with rules, see if the legislature needs to make some adjustments statutorily. So, uh, and I'm not convinced we're, we know the answers to those questions yet. So uh, Glenn Hager, the, the controller, uh, last week issued his uh, certified revenue estimate uh, and basically said that he's assuming that for the next couple of years, we're going to see an oil price around $50. If he's right, how, how bad is that going to be for the Texas oil and gas industry? I think right now we're obviously in a downturn. I think it's a real challenge. Um, and we appreciate the controller's numbers. I look, I see everything from $20 to 70 in the next mm -hmm. year. I don't, he's got the best number and it's how we at the agency are basing our budget as well, obviously. Uh, I think we are seeing clearly a downturn. We've lost thousands, probably up to 30,000 jobs in Texas so far. Uh, and that is a real concern when you've got people losing their jobs with no place to, you know, to, to go to get a new job because of the economy, not growing in other sectors as much as we'd all like to see that. Um, so I think that's a real challenge for us. And, and look, overall, this is an industry when we're in a downturn that figures out how to innovate too. So mm -hmm. while they'd all like, we'd all like a hundred, I think a hundred dollars is great, but it's not sustainable. It wasn't sustainable a year ago. $50 is not where it's ideal in this state. I don't know what the ideal number, it depends on where you are and depends on who you talk to, right? Well, I was but gonna I say, we've what, got an opportunity. What, what price does oil need to be for there to be a healthy industry? If you, depending on who you talk to, 60, 65 would 60, be nice. 65. Anything sustained that is a price. And, and interestingly, as we got through the summer, we had obviously had a drop in April into early July. We had a sustained price. We saw the number of permits go up at our agency. And then we, yes, because it was a sustained price. People thought there was some certainty in the market. Even at the lower price. Even at the okay. lower price. Um, and then when So it, what hurts the industry Volatility. That's right. Okay. And that's not unusual for this industry, by the way. So those are some of the risks that industry takes. But um, you know, when it hit 38, we saw we saw the number of permits and rigs go down. And I think we're not out of that that cycle, unfortunately, for a while. Do you have oil um, executives coming into your office complaining fairly regularly? I mean, what's their mood like? You talk to them all the time. You know, I think obviously there's concern, and and but they also know that in Texas specifically when the, the investments they're making are long-term mm -hmm. investments too. They're bullish on Texas overall. 
partly because regulatory certainty, partly because the fields we have, partly because there's infrastructure sitting here that they can still get the product to market. So um, Texas has sued the Obama administration several times um, over the last couple of years. And I know the Railroad Commission, and as a commission, you're not directly involved in the decision whether to bring suit or not. Um, but I'm curious about your opinion. Because the, Texas has sued and lost on mercury standards, on cafe standards, greenhouse gas permitting. Is this a good use of taxpayer money? It doesn't seem like we've got a good batting average. Well, it seems to me when you look at those rules, and, and we aren't involved in any of those, um, but when you look at some of these rules, what comes out of this sometimes is at least EPA acknowledging and or courts acknowledging that maybe the rules weren't the best rules in place to begin with. So clean, so 111D up and down on, on in the courthouse. And, and right now we've, we have a stay, which I think is a good stay for waters of the U.S., um, which people focused on agriculture, but frankly, waters of the U.S. affects everybody and affects oil and gas. It affects the pond in your backyard. So uh, I think there, it makes the federal government take a step back. And frankly, I think states do a better job than the feds. One size does not fit all in this country. Well, let me ask you one more question before we get to, to questions from the audience. Um, when you took uh, office in, in 2012, the conversation had just been introduced about this notion of unburnable carbon. And so what that basically means is that a certain percentage of the coal and oil and gas in the ground, we're going to need to stay there. It's going to need to stay there. We can't bring it out and burn it, because if we do, it will have an undo. It will raise the temperature and put too much carbon dioxide in the air. Do you feel that there's some percentage of fossil fuels that are going to need to stay in the ground for environmental reasons? Do you, never, do you, do you believe really this notion? Never thought about that like that. You've never thought about unburnable no. carbon? No. You've never been asked about that really before? Haven't. Interesting question. Well, it's it's becoming mainstream. One of the governors of the Bank of England came out in support of, of this notion recently. I mean, this is not, it sort of went very quickly from uh, somewhat of a fringe environmental notion to, to, to the center. Now, quite often, and one of the reasons I asked you about this is when people bring that up, it's coal that they're really talking about. And they're basically saying, well, we really can't burn much coal, which, now granted, Texas has some lignite uh, fields, but Texas could really benefit uh, if there's less coal. I'm, I'm wondering, so let me ask you another way. Do we need coal long-term? Given how much gas, natural gas there is in Texas and this country, do we need coal? You know, the other piece that we do at the Railroad Commission is regulate the coal mines in the state. Okay. And we see real benefit as far as job creation in the state. I think that's, and the estimate is there could be 10,000 jobs lost in, from coal if mines. If we were to close coal if mines. If we close coal mines. But the, I, I've said this publicly, and I really believe this. Texas is a good model for an energy plan in this country. We have nuclear. Mm -hmm. We have coal. We have natural gas. We have, we're the highest wind state in the country, and we have a lot of solar and other alternative energy, which as I sit on the University of Texas campus, hopefully the next generation's figuring out how, whatever the next energy source is. So energy overall is important to the state. We're growing, and I don't think you can immediately replace the coal mines, particularly with, on your electricity grid, mm -hmm. with natural gas today. I don't think it's, I don't think you can permit them fast enough. I don't think that our grid potentially can sustain that immediately. That will cost immediately. us. Immediately, so it maybe over cost, time? It will cost us billion, billions of dollars to upgrade. And so today, coal is a good mix for us. Mm -hmm. And I think it's an important mix across the country. Anything need to be done to coal? Um, I mean, do, do you feel that there needs to be more uh, carbon capture and storage or something like that to, to clean the coal up? Or and I think the, are you comfortable the, I with... I think the technology is coming along. It's, again, where technology is growing, but I don't think it's all the way there yet. Okay. 
So um, I'd be interested, uh, do we, have, we, don't, we don't have anyone quite yet coming up to the mics, but I'm sure there are people with a uh, burning question, no pun intended. So I'm, I'm interested to hear. And just remind everyone that uh, uh, please ask a question. This is, uh, is what we're looking for, not, not speeches. Yes, sir. Uh, thank you. Uh, Commissioner, is, I don't know if this mic is on, but I'm James LeBaugh. I work uh, here in town on fiscal matters. But I've got a question for you pertaining to uh, what may be the future of oil and gas. As economists will tell you, whatever is going to happen is already happening if you can just sift it out. There was when we were kids, you know, I, don't, I couldn't have told you what hydraulic fracturing was or directional drilling or EOR or CO2 floods, but chances are there's some kind of revolutionary technology on the horizon or maybe a handful. Uh, what are you hearing as a commissioner? What kind of things bubble up, you know, come to your attention as to the next big wave of technology in the industry? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I still think water has a lot of places and opportunities to grow as far as recycling, reuse, um, and how what we do with water first and foremost. EOR is a huge piece of what we're seeing now in Texas with carbon capture. We are have two, two companies, probably the largest carbon capture fields that they're using it for tertiary recovery in the state. And I think we're just at the cusp of, of even knowing how that works. Um, but just recovering, when you talk about horizontal drilling, hydraulic fracturing, we've seen a change in how those wells are being drilled from five years ago today. So I think the technology continues to, to grow and, and um, improve, which is important. But I think when you sit on University of Texas campus, um, biofuels are someplace where we're going some, at some point in the, in, if we can make it economic. So I think there's a lot of different opportunities for energy overall, battery source fuel. Um, I think the lo lots of opportunities that I'm probably not the engineer smart enough to know, but I'm always excited to hear new technologies. Um. Before we get uh, another question, oh, we have another question, oh, so. No, 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 please. <laughs> it's the audience portion. I've had my turn. Hi. Can, am I good? Um, hi. So my name is Jamie. I'm an undergrad here, and I'm studying chemistry, so I'm really interested in a lot of the energy that's going on. And um, one of the questions I have is one of the things I'm working on right now is uh, wastewater treatment from oil and gas operations. So I know that's a huge concern to people across the nation, not just Texas, but especially here, the drought and everything like that. Are there plans or, or, or things that are already in place to encourage operators right now and just, you know, in general for people to be treating and uh, increasing the amount of technology that we put perhaps money towards for treating wastewater so that we can get it back to the people? You know, yeah. it's an interesting question. Go ahead. But before I, I, I was reminded, I just remember that I'm supposed to repeat the question, I think probably okay. for, pod, for broadcasting. So the question was about wastewater, what's in place, what can be done to really uh, get people to, to treat wastewater. So why don't you? So first and foremost, we've got some rules in place to, I call it the carrot not, not stick approach to try to incentivize companies to, to recycle and, and reuse wastewater, oil and gas wastewater. But when you talk about wastewater, city utility wastewater, there's actually huge bidding wars that have been going on in the drought areas for city owned water wastewater to be used in oil and gas fields and in fracking technology. So I think that technology continues to grow and 
And let me say, the challenge that when you get look at flow back water, for instance, and you probably know this better than I, being the chemist, chemistry major, but what you bring up in the ground here may be different a mile down the road. You may have different components in that water. So a one-size-fits-all, we don't have the technology for a one-size-fits-all recycling uh, technology. And I think that's real opportunity if you make it cost-effective, but also some kind of one-size-fits-all or can quickly test that water. Um, and I know there's some technology out there. It just hasn't grown in an incubator-type technology world that happens on universities, I think is really important. Thank you. Thanks for the question. So you must hear this as well, because I know I hear it a lot. Um, do people still come up and ask you, is fracking safe? We get it every day. And I think the interesting answer is this. And the answer is based on science at our agency okay. is this. One, we've been fracking for 60 years in the state. This isn't new stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, two, we've got rules in place and have for 50 plus years on well integrity that, we, as you mentioned, we've just redone in the last two years. So we think that's important. Water gets protected very well in the state. And three, the, the real answer is there is not one place in this state that the Railroad Commission is aware of, and we go out and, and inspect on, regularly, that where fracking has caused water pollution. Not one place. So that is the real answer. I think that the fracking technology, which is a well completion technique, um, has been used across this country for 60 years. And I think it's a safe technology. When you say there's not one place across the state where fracking has caused water problems, are you, wh what do you mean by fracking? The actual bottom of the well creating fractures in the rock? Or are you talking about the whole process, sort of the soup to nuts? Uh, oh, the bottom of the well. Horizontal the well. hydraulic fracturing, there is not a play, and whether it's horizontal or not, just hydraulic fracturing has not caused water. So let me broaden the, the question then. If from oil and gas operations, Texas, from the first um, the flag that's pinned saying we're going to build the pad here, uh, the above ground operations, below ground operations, is, is the same true? Have you, are you finding uh, water contamination issues uh, out there? On rare instances, if you've had a well integrity issue, mm -hmm. whether the company had a, say their um, cement failed, for mm -hmm. instance. Um, there could be an issue, there's not that many. If there is, we go out and make companies clean it up, or we clean it up if we, as an agency, inherit the well. So water's really, really important in this state. Sir? Hi, uh, Al Braden from Austin, uh, Commissioner Craddock. Uh, methane is, is one of the big greenhouse gas uh, emissions from the, from the oil fields that I'm really concerned about. It's 25 or more times dangerous and, and planet warming than CO2. Uh, the EPA is working on regulations to minimize emissions and leaks from new oil and gas operations, but there's so much infrastructure already in place, and I, I'm not sure if it's TCEQ or the Railroad Commission that really monitors and controls the, uh, the regulations for the emissions of, and leaks of methane, but uh, is there a way that we can work to minimize those leaks on the existing oil fields, gas fields, pipelines, and so forth across the state? Well, it's TCEQ so, first and foremost. Oh, I'm sorry, me, you're yeah, supposed to do the question. question. Yes, That's just right. so people at home can hear. So the question was about a concern about methane leakage um, and who regulates it and what can be done to ensure that as much is being done as possible 
to contain methane leakage? So first and foremost, TCEQ does all of the air emissions regulations, both for oil and gas and the rest of the state. So that you need to talk to TCEQ commissioner first and foremost. So, but I will answer this on your question about old versus new. The way the rule has been explained to me, the proposed methane rule has been explained to me. If an operator changes a valve, that is now considered new, and they will have to then test for methane emissions on an old pipe or an old facility if they change or improve anything on that facility. That's how the rule's been explained to me. So I think you'll start getting old facilities fall under the new rule. Does the entire facility fall under that rule? I, that's unclear, actually. Okay. Well, let me, what, what needs, what, from an oil and gas operator's perspective, can they be doing more? I mean, isn't there, I mean, isn't there low-hanging fruit uh, uh, to, to go out and, and get and to capture more of this methane? And look, I think the low-hanging fruit's been done and is being done without having a rule in place is, is the impression that I have. Um, and if you look at methane um, air emissions, when and we test them, our TCEQ tests them in the state, both in the Metroplex and in South Texas, um, all of the air quality levels are within legal levels. And so we aren't having an overall problem like is being explained or um, people think uh, across the state at this point. So do we need any sort of federal methane rule? I think it's an overreach at this point. An overreach. Okay. Any more questions out there? Okay. Well, um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, just looking ahead into the future. What do you feel uh, there's obviously so much discussion right now about the future for oil and gas and renewables and how they balance out. What, what's the future for oil and gas and what needs to happen uh, to ensure that future? Well, I think first and foremost, there's a future for oil and gas. I don't think it's going away. Okay. Um, one, certainly on the electricity power grid, but two, how are we going to drive our cars? And I don't think our technology's there to be all electric. And if you're all electric, how are you going to Where's the electricity coming from? Right. People forget about that part of it. Um, we are not going, we're moving a direction, and I don't think it's a bad thing necessarily to add renewables and other things mm -hmm. into the mix. I said that earlier, and I believe that. I grew up in West Texas. There's enough wind out there for a lot of people, yeah. so I'm glad for it. I'm glad there's a reason I live in Austin, to the wind. Um, we, we have a lot of wind here, but I think that if you look at, and there's an argument if you look at, um, if you look at windmills, they aren't necessarily always environmentally friendly. How are you gonna put enough solar unless we all go to our rooftops? So I think the um, limitations today on the technology we have available is a challenge. Oil and gas is gonna be here for a long time. Whether the US moves all the way to something else, the rest of the world isn't gonna get there as quick as we are. Mm -hmm. And so I think oil and gas is important. I think it's important not only because of the fuel source it is, but obviously for an economy across the country. When you look at the growth in the country in this last, out of this last recession, mm -hmm. they've been oil and gas jobs. When you look at, I mean, two million plus jobs created. Now, we've lost 200,000, mm -hmm. by the way, in the past year. And I, somebody said to me, a friend said to me, if we'd lost 200,000 jobs in the car industry, they'd be getting a federal bailout. Mm -hmm. Oil and gas isn't asking for a bailout. They're out there trying to innovate and figure out how to be still effective and economic. So, um, so I think this is an, a, an industry that's going to be around for a long time. Okay. Question? Um, my question is very much related to that. My name is Brooke Holloman, and I'm a first-year grad student in public affairs. Um, you talked about 
the state of Texas being um, a energy portfolio model for the country, and I just wanted to know if there was any discussion on a kind of a cap of fossil fuel production long term. You said fossil fuel will be around for a while, and I didn't know if that was part of the discussion. A just any kind of a number it's at some point that we're going to move from here to less carbon intensive fuels like natural gas. Okay, so the question is about the the portfolio, uh, Texas being a model portfolio, and is there some is there a discussion, or, or maybe would you support some sort of cap on fossil fuel, uh, the, the, the contribution of fossil fuels to that energy mix? Well, look, let me say this. It's a free market economy. So I think as long as you're following rules and regulations and can make a living at it, I think that's where we are in the state. And there's not, not to my knowledge, there's not been any conversation about capping what we're using one way or the other. Thank you. Um, where do you come down on... Uh, this issue of a carbon tax. A number of the large oil companies are met in Paris last week and they were talking about climate change and they were talking about some sort of uh, uh, carbon tax. So where do you come down on that? You know, we, we really don't get involved in that issue at the agency and I haven't really thought about it that much. Um, I think if companies are willing to do that, that's a conversation they need to have if it suits their business model and if it works for them. But it would it would impact Texas and it impact would. the Texas economy. So it's not, it's not something you're even concerned about or having thought about? Haven't really gotten, gotten into that at this point. Okay. I think you need, uh, there, there maybe needs to be better questions asked to the commissioners at, uh, at, at the- There might be. Okay, well, um, thank you all very much for joining us today. If, if there are no more questions, I think we're going to, oh, we do, oh, we have one more question, excellent. Yeah, you mentioned you're from West Texas. Um, there's a big sort of controversy out there right now that's been deepening more and more about the Trans-Pecos pipeline. Uh, I'm wondering, as a commissioner, how you would address those community concerns and how the Railroad Commission sort of processes those. At what point do they affect you giving out a permit to build construction? Okay, so the question is about Texas's very own Keystone Pipeline, the Trans-Pecos Pipeline, the, a controversial gas, if I'm not mistaken, natural gas pipeline okay. running basically from Midland down into Mexico. It so is, and I wouldn't what, call it the Keystone Pipeline, so don't say that. <laughs> um, we're permitting pipelines across Mexico, Texas border. The in industry is getting them permitted pretty regularly. We are not having that same problem. Okay, there's so. not, but, but the question was, there is obviously uh, some element of community opposition to this pipeline. How do you address that? How do you deal with that type of question? Here's where, what we did this past year in, at the Railroad Commission. We adjusted our rules. When you are putting a pipe in the ground in this state, uh, you come get a T4 permit from the Railroad Commission. And we adjusted our rules to meet, have a more vibrant classification process for that. So there are three types of pipe in the state. You're a gas utility you are a private pipeline, or you are a common carrier, which by statute then you have the ability to use eminent domain. We, are a class, we classify based on our permit. Um, we ask for information, pretty a lot of information um, for those permits. So Trans-Pecos uh, has a permit, a T4 permit from the Railroad Commission at this time. Uh, they are, are, we do not get involved in routing, that is not our um, not our world. We do not get involved in routing. Those contracts, but are between companies and the landowner and the communities. What we always do, and what I do on a regular basis to any operator, whether a pipeline, oil and gas operator, is encourage them to be involved in the communities, to have a lot of information, to have town hall meetings, and to be engaged so people know what they're doing. So we 
at the second piece of that after that pipeline is built, if it is built, um, and because it, it is a private contract between that company and the landowners and who they're taking natural gas away and selling it to the end user. Uh, we then are in charge of pipeline safety inspections. It's a really important part of our agency for us. Um, we want to make sure we've got our pipelines get inspected. We have over 400,000 miles of pipe that the, in Texas that the Railroad Commission's in charge of. Plus, there's another roughly 100,000 100, miles of interstate pipe that the federal government gets to inspect. So we're the biggest pipe state, frankly, by, um, we're like the, by one-sixth, we have, we're more than anybody else. So it, pipelines there, are important to us. Is there any recourse if the community uh, is, is up in arms, very upset, is there any recourse for the community at the Railroad Commission or, or anywhere else in the state government to try to prevent a, something being built or rerouted? You know, it, it, not at our agency, there isn't, because we don't get involved in routing. They definitely can go to the courthouse. That's, that's the best remedy for Lawsuit, them. Lawsuit, basically. Yes. Um, okay, so essentially it's, it's, a private, it's a private legal matter. That's correct. Okay. Um, one more question? Commissioner, you up for it? Sure. All right, great, one last question. Um, so I just have one more question for me. Um, but in terms of, in talking especially about Texas, where would you say that we should be putting our efforts and our money for the future of energy? Um, talking about Texas, like the next 10 years, but then also looking even further beyond that with you know, the next 50 to 100 years. I think that's an interesting question. I think first and foremost, any kind of new technology that's coming out, whether it's oil and gas related, coal related, because there is some clean coal technology out there, um, not economic and not really vibrant, but potential. Um, how we um, do it safer, more effective, and more efficient, I think are all more very important. And I think alternative fuel, fuels, renewables are another real conversation in the state that we usually lead on and we're glad to lead on. So I think that's real opportunity for the whole state. But again, water recycling, what we do with waste disposal overall, whether it's oil and gas waste or other waste, those technologies are really important for a state that's growing. And how we do it better, get trucks off the road, how we, um, are, we have safety in that respect as well. So lots of opportunities, I think, overall as an energy industry. Well, thanks everyone for coming. Uh, great conversation. Thanks. Thank you very much. Thanks, Russell. Good to see you.